Hello and welcome to the Irish Times Book Club podcast. I'm Martin Doyle. This month's guest is Sinead Gleeson, one of Ireland's leading arts journalists. She is a former presenter of the book show on RT Radio and the editor of three anthologies of Irish short stories. Next year, Picador will publish a collection of Sinead's own essays, provisionally titled Constellations. We met at the Irish Writer Centre to discuss The Long Gaze Back, an anthology of Irish women writers which Sinead edited. The Long Gaze Back is April's Irish Times Book Club choice. Thanks all for coming to the Irish Times Book Club podcast recording with uh, Sinead Gleeson, editor of the Long Gaze Back Anthology of Irish Women Writers. Um, my name is Martin Doyle, I'm books editor of the Irish Times. Um, Sinead, thanks very much for coming along. I was just saying to somebody on, this is also, of course, um, also the Dublin One City One Book choice. So I was thinking, long gaze back must be the long glazed look by this stage. <laughs> um, well, I'm in the middle of a, a, a quite a crazy month with a lot of events um, and it's been really busy, but it's been really great because there's a lot of enthusiasm. And then I, I did a lot of panels when the book came out with the writers and I'm doing panels with them again. And of course, a lot more things have changed since then. And also they all have each of them bring something new to the panels that they didn't say the last time around, maybe. But um, I'm actually a little bit worried about talking to you, Martin, because um, you're such a sort of Svengali interviewer that last month when you had June Caldwell uh, sitting in this seat for the Irish Times uh, book, book Club podcast, you managed to wangle a very interesting confession out of June in relation to this book. OK, can you re- remind us what that is? Uh, first of all, I would say it doesn't take too much to get anything out of June. Now, but she's <laughs> a very talkative writer, but... Uh, um, I gave the writers a deadline of a year and then June confessed that she wrote her story two days before the deadline, which no she didn't messing. tell me. And she said, oh, I don't tell Sinead Gleeson, which she said as it was being recorded. So, Very good. Um, tell us, Sinead, um, why and how this um, anthology came about. Like, um, you know, I've, re- I've read myself. Um, I'm sorry, it's a piece that you've written for, for publication, but it hasn't been published yet. It's being published and Saturday week's Irish Times. But if you could just briefly tell me the backstory to um, how, the, how you got the commission to, to do the anthology. Um, well, the, the story I tell about the book is actually that sometimes book, books come out of big things and sometimes they come out of small things. Um, the big thing is that I suppose I felt that this book was was quite needed and I didn't know if anyone would ever do another one. I, I love anthologies. Um, I think there's something of a, a grab bag for a reader. Um, you're, it's, it's one spine and you're presented with an awful lot of different writers. And even if you're incredibly well read in general or with the short story, I buy anthologies all the time. And when I pick one up, there's always people in there I don't know. So it's a brilliant way to find new writers, um, which is one of the reasons I love them. Um, and in 2001... Uh, when I was a young journalist, I was sent a copy of Cutting the Night in Two, which is edited by Edwin Conlon and Hans Christian Oyser. Uh, and it was a real shock to me, actually, because my experience of anthologies, um, as someone who loves a short story and always kind of picks them up like a magpie and buys them everywhere I see them, um, was that in terms of Irish anthologies, they had been mostly edited by men. Uh, and if you look at those books, uh, unfortunately, most of the people in them are men, um, which would make you think if you arrived from a different planet and you went, went, you know, plucked a few Irish anthologies from the 30s up to the, the 80s or even sometimes 90s, um, you would see that 
they were mostly male edited and that there was only a handful of women in them. And Evelyn Conlon says in the introduction to that collection that sometimes you see one woman at the party, another time you see another woman at the party, but you don't see them all together and you don't see different ones. And there's a fragmentation then in the, the Irish female voice in terms of the short story. And that always kind of really stuck with me. So I had done another anthology of male and female writers for, for, uh, for a charity called Silver Threads of Hope and Owen Purcell was then the commissioning editor at New Island and I happened to be in his office one day we were chatting about something and I, to this day if I had been sitting anywhere else in that office I feel that maybe this book might not have happened or it might have taken a different route or a, a lot longer to, to be born um, but I happened to see over his shoulder I saw the spine of that book and I loved the colour of it and I said God you know I love that book it was such a big book for me it was so important I hadn't seen a book of 34 women which is what it is um, God, you really should do another one of those and without missing a beat because publishers tend not to. He just said, you should do another one of them. Um, and that's literally how it happened. He said, would, would you be interested? Would you do it? And I thought, well, I, I would. But um, And I suppose there's a curiosity about if you're an editor, you want to see what that book would look like, what you would decide to put in, what would, what would need to be included, what you feel should be included, but also the stuff that you just love and, and deserves to be anthologised. Um, so it was for a lot of reasons, a lot because of that, that imbalance. And I know there were people like David Marcus who, you know, every generation needs a, a David Marcus, such a, an advocate uh, and a champion of the short story. He did such brilliant work and so many collections, but even some of his earlier collections, and I was only looking at them today, um, there is two or three women in some of them. Um, but then we come up to the state of the art, uh, his anthology from 1992, which is 50-50, which is really impressive. So he stands alone, I think, uh, in terms of the male anthologists as, as noticing throughout his career that there was an imbalance uh, and trying to do something about it. A learning curve, but he got there. He did, yeah. Did you realise when you took it on how much work um, was going to be involved? Like you might think an anthology, well, the story's already written, you just sort of pick one from here, one from there, whatever, but there was actually far more to it than than perhaps maybe even anticipated yourself? Absolutely. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I think people just think 30 stories, you pick the first 30, so in you go, book done, great. Um, not at all, because again, there's, the, there's a massive fear that comes with an anthology, which is um, who, who goes in, what do you omit and what do you include and, and what are your reasons for doing that? The stakes are high. Yeah, so you don't want to pick 30 stories and then six months later find an old collection from 1900 or even 2000 and, and go, oh God, I wish I'd read that. So the first job of any anthologist before you even start dis deciding on what goes in is you, is you start reading. So you start reading very broadly. And again, because we're talking about a lot of female writers here, a lot of the work is really difficult to find. So that involves... You know, I went out to UCD library, I went to the National Library a lot, um, I trawled around secondhand shops, I bought anything I could find. But even then, it's still, there's so much, I I, I think one of the, the case in points, I, I know this is to do with the glass shore, but Janet McNeil was in that collection and I knew that she wrote, like, you, you find out that someone's written five books and then you can't find the five books, so you don't know what's in them. And then with Janet McNeil's, I tracked them down. Most of them were for children. One was sort of Christian or biblical stories. None of them were, would have worked for the glass shore. And I, in the end, someone said to me, I, I really feel there are stories of hers around. And in the end, it was a, a student in Queens who found five clippings in an old drawer in the, in the archive in Queens. And that's how you, sometimes the work happens. because it, it, And none of those stories have ever been in a book. So They've never been an uncollected story. Uncollected stories. So mm. it's literally, as I've said many times before, a friend called it, literary archaeology there's a lot of digging um, I remember interviewing Philip Hensher uh, who did the Penguin book of the, the, the British short story a couple of years ago very fine bound two volume collection and he said that he read 20,000 stories for that book um, now I can't claim to have read that many but I, I did read absolutely 
uh, thousands, but not not quite 20, I would say. Does it feel a bit like the judgment of Solomon, though? Like, you know, at the end of the day, like one of the toughest things is kind of like they say about writers, kill your babies. So um, you must have had a whole range in front of you. And then having to kind of wield the axe must have been um, a pretty tough decision to make, not least because the whole point of the anthology was to kind of restore people from oblivion to you know, to bring them back into the, the public domain, if you like. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when you start, obviously, New Island gave me a, a rough page count. So that roughly was going to be about 30 stories. So then you decide, what's the shape of that book going to look like? How or, you know, who will I include and, and who will I not? Uh, uh, which is, you know, if I included everybody, the book would be this size and unwieldy and hard to carry around. But I, yeah, I, I think there's something about... You have to be an anthology is very subjective. Like you'd pick thirty different stories to me. Everyone in this room, if I asked you all to kind of write your own anthology, no two would be the same, and that's the issue. So what you're trying to do is sort of because it's meant to be representative of women's writing in Ireland. I had to include, and I, it was essential to include some of the, the bigger and important names. Again, the women that I always say are the two or three names that are always found in every anthology, like Elizabeth Bone, like Mary Lavin, like Somerville and Ross. But they can't they, be overlooked. But they can be overlooked. Uh, and again, there is uh, th that idea that if you're including the same women in all the collections as male editors did all the time, often it's like her table spread. I don't know how many times I saw that in a, in a collection. So, in, and, but Bowen is actually the example of somebody I tried not to choose the most anthologized story by somebody. The exception was Bowen because she's, that's just such a brilliant story and I love it and everybody knows it. And I, th I think Anne Enright was saying the other night she thinks it was in Exploring English. Um, and I was talking to Avery Walsh, who's obviously written a lot about her. And I, I, you know, I was really struggling going, I must pick the obscure one. And he was like, just yeah. go with that. It's go really good. Yeah. So so I did. Um, and then when I was shaping the book, I, I've, I've talked about it in terms of it being a, a triptych. So it was going to be dead writers. Um, uh, writers who are well known, mid-career if you like, writers and then um, emerging and, and new writers and that was the sort of shape for me. Given that you know this was in part um, a, a salvaging um, exercise in terms of bringing to you know to, into public into the public gaze um, writers who who hadn't been recognised as, as part of the canon. There are four dead writers. Was there a temptation? Were there were there others that almost made the cut? Could you maybe mention some of the, you know, the names that sort of, I don't know, LT Mead or whoever yeah, who yeah. might have represented. I'll do know. it for the dead ones, not for the living ones sure. that are murdered. Um, yeah, there's there's eight, there's eight dead writers. Um, I mean, there's people like George Egerton who I would his. You know, she's so under, not underrepresented in, in academia. I think there's so much work being done on her, but I think a general reader and even a very well-read reader of Irish fiction wouldn't necessarily be that familiar. Um, and then with people like, my other rule with the living writers, and I was really st strict about this, and I'm told this is unusual, it doesn't seem unusual to me, that if you were alive, you had to write me a new story, um, which is why I always get asked, why isn't Edna O'Brien in it? And I did ask uh, Edna, she was finishing The Little Red Chairs, and she said, you can have anything else. But um, I thought if I start there, it'll be a domino effect and everyone will just give me something mm -hmm. that everybody's seen and it won't be fresh. Whereas when people bought this book, when it came out, 22 of the stories they'd never read and, and by Emer McBride, by Anne Enright, um, by Mary Costello. So I, I, that was a very deliberate thing. So in terms of older writers, God, there's, there's loads. One thing I did do though with, with the dead writers is that I deliberately, I had more than one story in mind because I was so, you run into lots of right. roadblocks with money, money and rights. Uh, certain publishers are more tricky to deal with than others. And 
yeah, there was one story uh, with Mary Lavin. I had it was the two stories that I really wanted, and we had some problems with the other one. But I loved them both. There wasn't two. But I think it would have broken my heart if I'd set my heart just on something and wasn't allowed. But it, that's another part of the process. It's very time consuming. And an anthology, even though one editor's name goes on the spine, New Island were brilliant. Hannah Shorten worked a lot with me on, on rights and, and very grafty legwork stuff um, because it's very, very time consuming. It can take months to get replies. And I, I had that again with the Glass Shore finding that there is 40 stories by a writer in an obscure New York magazine and then not being able to find a breadcrumb of them anywhere online. So then you, you, you know it's there, but you can't yeah, find so it. Not in time anyway. Yeah, yeah. So it can it can break your heart, that kind of undiscovered stuff. And you always feel, even when it's finished, what if I did it? What is there one glistening gem that I've yeah, forgotten yeah, that I haven't yeah. put in and that's just out of my reach? And also there's a bit of a hive mind in terms of, you know, you're not just relying on your own resources in terms of what you know or what you've read, but you're also able to ask you know, academics and fellow yeah. writers and so forth. Yeah, I did. And I did that. Uh, obviously, I spoke to Mar Margaret Keller, who was here, was a brilliant, brilliant help. Mm -hmm. uh, I asked all sorts of people, uh, anyone I could think of, loads of different writers, other anthologists, mm -hmm. uh, Anne Enright. I mean, anybody that I just th thought would have, even just, you know, I, I because of the book show, obviously, and I'm, I'm a big reader, I would like to think that I'm quite uh, up to speed. But obviously, with older writers, I'm, I'm, I'm not an academic and I don't have all the experience that all of those people do, like, like Ava, like Margaret, uh, like Glenn Patterson in Belfast. And I, I just talked to a lot of people who had a lot of knowledge. So, yeah, you, you, nearly, if it takes so long, you nearly go, God, let's do one every year, nearly. But they are, this took me two years. They're very, it's very time consuming. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Let's talk a little bit, um, if we can, about you know what actually makes um, a good anthology, or actually um, the importance of um, anthologies. Like to quote from from Margaret, um, she she wrote a piece which um, was published in the Irish Times in Irish literary his in Irish literary history from the nineteenth century, spirit of the nation. to school texts such as soundings anthologies have shaped uh, generations of readers and she quotes um, Leah Price who says anthologies determine not simply who gets published or what gets read but who reads and how so they can be hugely influential like so many people speak of the anthologies that they, that, that they study for Leaving Cert or whatever and that very much shapes their their reading preferences or, or, or what they understand as to what's there or thereabouts I remember again in your piece you you um, wrote about um, an anthology that you, that you studied that was um, edited by your lecturer. Soundings, which had yeah. one woman in it and she's not even Irish, Emily Dickinson, yeah. So t tell me a little bit about that then or expand on that there. Yeah. Like, you know, what can anthologies do or what should yeah. um, a, a good anthology do? Well, I think if you take those school ones uh, as, as problematic and as, as heavily imbalanced as some of them were, they're, they're often unfortunately, the last encounter that some people will have with poetry and short stories. So you might ask someone who hasn't read or hasn't read that kind of works in school, and that's the only, they've read The Confirmation Suit, or they've read, you know, Circus Animals Desertion, and that's the last time they encountered that kind of work. So it might be the only, you know, intersection of literature in some people's lives. And I think in that sense, they're very important, which is why there's even more uh, onus on them to be more balanced and, and not just in terms of male female but more diversity maybe with the changing multicultural Ireland with the LGBT issues all that kind of stuff but just making it not to, to quote the overused line that male pale and stale um, uh, and that's kind of something that, that's always occurred to me but 
I think if you look at something like Granta, I mean, Granta have been such uh, movers and shakers in terms of the work that they present. And they do, they've done the American one and Enright has edited their English one. Richard Ford has done anthologies. Um, I think the last Granta one was ben, edited by Ben Marcus. Um, and those kind of books, again, because of who's behind them, I think people are automatically interested in what will go in. There's a certain amount of interest in them. But absolutely, it is... It is there, this book was was sort of ra railing against the canon, but an anthology in itself is canonical in, in a way. It's deciding here are 30 people, you must read them instead of here are all these under, other, other hundreds of people who aren't in this book. Um, but it wasn't meant in that way. It was it was meant as an act of, of redress uh, and not one that was meant to exclude the other writer, the writers who didn't make it into the book. So um, like I say, I think as a form, because it's such a collection of different people, and it's all in one spine. And also, I mean, these are not like, if, if I look at, you know, if you look at Field Day or you look at Philip Henshaw's collection, they're not mobile things. This is a thing you can carry around and yeah, read on the yeah, train. Yeah. So it is the idea that you're 10 or 12. This, what I love about them is that, is that fragmentary nature of them. You're 10 or 12 pages in one writer's head, consciousness, point of view, whatever way they decide to tell you the story. And then you're, you're finished and you move on. Um, at the same time, I always think with these books of Mavis Gallant, who says, um, with any, whether it's a single author or it's an anthology, you should read one short story a day and close the book. Um, because it's, as Kevin Barry says, you should need to open a window after the short story. It shouldn't be a thing that you gobble down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And I don't, you don't like, like, I'll read one on my lunch hour. Um, but yeah, so I, I think I, I think they can be very important. And I think when, when you know, when this book came out or when The Glass Shore came out and The Glass Shore had a whole different set of politics and omission attached to it even more so because there there hadn't been a book like that. Female Lines from 1985 was, was not just short stories, it was memoirs, political writing, it was poetry. But uh, when I did go up to the North and doing events for this book, I just heard people saying to me, where's our book? We don't have a book. And, and then Lucy Caldwell railroaded mm -hmm. me into doing one so I guess that's one of the most positive aspects of this book that mm. it you know it has had an afterlife that it actually inspired yeah. you know a further anthology uh, The Glass Shore yeah um, and, Dawn, guess, and Dawn's book uh, The uh, Female Lines which just came out recently sure. Dawn Sherrod Baddow's mm -hmm, book mm -hmm. interesting as well as being um, I guess um, identifying or foregrounding the gender of the the writers in it um, it's also maybe we're not or it hasn't been focused on the fact that it's also the Irish is in there. Like, so again, just as, you know, writing can't just be reduced to male or female, even the, perhaps uh, the idea of a national tradition is problematic when, when writers are, take their influences um, from all over yeah. and so forth. And for example, the, the very subtitle of The Glass Shore um, is a bit of a dance with, with language or with um, you've no idea how many emails and conversations with, there were with, about that <laughs> with notions of identity um, the subtitle being um, women writers from the north north of Ireland yeah and so yeah. sort of because, because nor Northern Ireland has a very it's a very politicised term for a lot of people and even though I used the nine counties of Ulster I thought if I put Ulster in the title of that book and I'm not from any of those nine counties that's going to be deeply contradictory for some people uh, and, and inflammatory for, to others. So that's why it was broader broader than that. Uh, it also gave me an excuse to include the wonderful and massively overlooked uh, Margaret Barrington um, from uh, County Donegal, often just sometimes called Mrs. Lima Flaherty, another writer, um, but a, a brilliant writer in her, in her own right. Tell us a bit about that then, how um, this anthology kind of spawned or, or, or led on to the Northern Anthology. 
Yeah, I, again, when I was putting the, the, the long case back together, I mean, you could, there's technically six writers in the book uh, who are Northern, or with Northern Connections, uh, which is the fifth of the book. And I didn't have any idea that there would be another book after this, especially as it, it took a long time. Um, and we went, I went to Belfast and did events with a couple of the writers and chaired a couple of things with Jan. I was on panels that Jan Carson chaired. Uh, and I remember we did one in the Lyric in Belfast. And I, I always, it was like a, at the end there was a Q&A. And rather than questions, were a lot of comments saying, we love this book, this is a great book, but wait till we tell you about our situation here. And it's really bad. Uh, and it became a sort of I am Spartacus moment where everyone kind of going, where's our book? Where's our book? Um, and I, I really thought about it. And Lucy was on that panel with me and she just said, you know, maybe you should think about that. And, and I did. My first thought was, I'm not from here. I don't have to write, the right to do that book. That will probably annoy some people. I, I don't think that I should. Uh, and I talked to Lucy and I talked to various people in Queens and lots of writers and I kept having conversations with people saying, look, you've done two anthologies already. People know that, that you can do this and that you'll do it a certain way. So why don't you just do it? Because no one else up here. And this, the other problem with, with publishing, I had a lot of conversations with how publishing has changed in the North. And there used to be a lot more places for women to get published. Uh, uh, there, there isn't the funding up there anymore. And as various people, anyone who, was, who might have had any worries said to me, no one up here will fund or be able to afford to fund a book like this. So with New Ireland and you do it, at least it will be in the world. Um, so I did. So I did it. I The Long Gaze Back came out in September and then the book won the book award in November and around then New Ireland started whispering my ear a lot and by Christmas they um, made me go for lunch and said, why don't you do it? So I, I did. I think, I think I even sent some emails over Christmas to people to secure them. Um, but that was another, another one of very hard to find certain people and the Janet McNeil thing when I'd just given up hope and I went and did an, I was actually doing a glass uh, Long Gaze Back event when somebody in the audience went, I'm doing my PhD in her. I know where there are five stories. Let's go talk in this quiet corner. So, um, so that's happened. Yeah. So okay, I did it in eight months, which was a lot when I think about it now. I was going to say, was mm. there lessons learned? Was it an easier process? The the spin off. Uh, yes and no. I mean, because I had still read an awful lot of work, but obviously by this, the criteria was that it had to be from the nine, the nine counties of Ulster. So I had to go off and read loads more work. But then, you know, getting to go and read loads of short stories as part of your job. Oh God, how terrible. Um, so I, I didn't give out about it in that sense. But yeah, it was. And I was up and down. I went to the, the Linen Hall and went up a couple of times in the train and just was, again, when you do an anthology, people are really, really helpful. Um, and Ian Sansom and Glenn Patterson were, were just brilliant, as were others. And um, I remember when we launched the book uh, in the, did it in the Ulster Hall, which was lovely because Bernie McGill's story in the book, who's also in The Long Gaze Back, uh, is about a painting that's in the Ulster Hall and is partly set in there. And wonderful Dave in No Alibis got, got the, ven the venue for us. Uh, and afterwards in the signing queue, um, Ruth Hooley, who, uh, or Ruth Carr, as she is now, who'd edited uh, the female line in 1985, came up to say, it's great that this exists. And I was like, well, I'm only continuing what you started. And I think the climate of me editing these two books, it's, it's not easy to publish books and it's not easy to convince someone to do short stories or all female books. But I d didn't do anything like the hard work. I imagine people like Ruth and Alva Smith and anybody else who published books uh, at a difficult time. Uh, often it's down to the small presses, the independent presses, the feminist presses to take on that work when main publishers won't. Um, and I think this, my book is just part of a, a link in a chain of a lot of brilliant work done by uh, incredible women before me so are we in a healthier space then if um, mainstream publishers are taking on um, um, a challenge like this or a project like this do you think there has been 
you know, and evolution, uh, are we advanced on the learning curve of an appreciation of, of uh, women writers? Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's twofold actually. Um, I get asked a lot about, oh, is there a short story revival? And maybe there is for publishers. I don't think there is for readers because they never went away for readers. If you're committed to the short short story, you're you're very loyal to it. You'll keep on reading it, um, uh, whether that's you work in this industry or you're a hardcore reader or you're an academic. Um, it never went away for any of us. For publishers, yeah, they were a little bit distasteful. Uh, and I always always repeat this line, but I think it's such a great line by Kevin Barry again, where he said about 10, 15 years ago, if you went in to a publisher's office with a book of short stories. It was like dragging in a corpse behind you. Um, and that's that's obviously changed. And part of that has happened not because of one thing, but it's also because the, the rise of the, the wonderful Stinging Flies 20 years old this year, launching the careers of Colin Barrett, of Kevin and Danielle McLaughlin. Um, and you know, Gorse and Banshee, there's Tangerine in the North, there's been loads of new platforms and places that don't, that make it seem more accessible and not as, as impossible to break into this world of writing, so to speak. Um, so those things have happened. I think publishers are more interested. I know there's the whole, here's my short stories, and they're asking you, where's your novel coming right behind it? I know that happens too. But in terms of also, I think in the last 10 years, and I think I wrote this in the piece for you, we've had a lot of interesting conversations, even in the last three years around women's lives, whether that's to do with Waking the Feminists or Me Too or various other movements, the conversations we're having about uh, women's bodies in Ireland at the moment with the referendum approaching. Um, a lot of that stuff is all really relevant and timely, even with some of the stories in this book seem quite prophetic to me in a way. So I think a lot of things have changed that have enabled that. And I do think there's more of a risk, more of a, a willingness by publishers to take a risk, and, and and this book sort of proves that it had already done done well and won awards, and it, now it's kind of this is people are talking about it again. But it, it's it's almost like the, the gender of it is 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 part of it and essential in some way to me. Uh, in other ways, it's it's not. Um, th these are just thirty great stories to me. It doesn't actually matter who wrote them. I I remember when when the book came out. The book was launched in September twenty fifteen, and then I remember. I remember the day of the Fiac McNeil tweet about what had gone on at the Abbey. And uh, for research recently, I found that tweet again. And I realised that th three of the people who were the first to respond to Fiac saying, where are the women, were myself, Belinda McKeown, who's in this book, uh, and Helen Shaw, and later Leon Bell, um, where we were all kind of wondering what, with all the conversations we're having lately, how is it still happening? How does it still go on where people don't see that there's an, there's an imbalance here? Um, and I went to the first, I went to the Waking the Feminist event in the, the Abbey and then that month when the book award won and I had to get up and say some things, I was very surprised. And I, 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 the first thing I could think of doing was thanking them because this book comes from a, a place of activism in a way because I, I, did, I had complained about this stuff and I didn't want to spend my life complaining. So you can complain and, and moan and whisper uh, with your friends about it um, or you can actually do something. And, and Lee and Bell and the incredible women of Waking the Feminists um, did exactly that as well. Rather than giving out about it or, you know, hashtagging a series of tweets about it, they actually did something. And and you can you can do things and you can make a difference if yeah. if you if you take action. Mm -hmm. And that's this book is very linked. So Leon and I talk a lot about how there's a, is such a connection between the two things. I, I see that for sure. As well as bring um, things together, like I think you've acknowledged the fact that at, at one level it's kind of problematic to kind of corral women writers into one anthology as if to suggest that it's like a, a sub-genre or something. Yeah. Um, so how important was it for you to demonstrate in the stories that you, th that you chose a variety of styles and uh, considerations of themes and so forth? Um, with the, well, the only way I could choose 
those stories were with the dead ones because I did, the only brief I gave the 22 living writers was, here's the word count, mm -hmm. don't send it any later than this day. Uh, and that was it. Uh, because it, I, I don't think I'd like to be in an anthology where I was asked to write about something, unless it was like best ghost stories, which I would love to write. Um, but if it was a, an anthology that was all female if I was told, oh, write about babies or, or something. And that's, again, one of the thematic problems that, uh, and the assumptions that's often made about women's work that, uh, you know... You know, famous white male Jewish American writers who are you know at the, the acme of writing. So we're all told we'll write about relationships and sex uh, and where they live and their day-to-day -day lives, and it'll be you know a philosophical inquiry and very deep. And if a woman does the same thing, it's just considered a much smaller and less political piece of writing. Um, it's it's like the Anne and Wright at the launch of this book talked about if a woman or a man says the words the cat sat on the mat. Um, they mean very different things when men and women say them. Um, and I, I think, yeah, so I, I didn't know. And that's that was great. The best part of this book is waiting for the stories to come in to see what would be written, written about. And obviously there are, there are you know, in, things in this that are supposed specifically female, like miscarriage or pregnancy. Uh, and I say cis female um, pregnancy, miscarriage, uh, sisterhood. Um, but there's a lot of things that are just equally, you know, bereavement, immigration, loss, uh, bad family members, uh, pets, landscape, nature, um, all of those things that are, that are just the universal. Actually, Neve Boyce made a brilliant point at our Rohini event last night that if you get a book, uh, an anthology that's full of men, uh, all those stories, unless those people ventriloquize really well or write from a female point of view the way Colm Tobin does very well, um, you're, you're going to miss out on loads of experience. The chances are they're not going to write about those themes. So you're going to get a book that is leaving out the experience of half the population already. And that's another bigger issue. If it's if there isn't more more balance, there's, there's going to be less diversity, I think. So yeah, so I didn't, with the Dead Riders, um, I went for the classic with Elizabeth Bone. The Mary Lavin story, I, I have to say, reminds me, I think about the Me Too situation when I think about it. It's a very... It, and we all agree, disagree. We kind of disagreed about this in arena the other night, where people thinking that Cross and the character in it, his he was just chancing his arm, and he was just a bit. He tries to. Um, he comes to this woman's house. He's going to be doing some work on her land, and he um, makes a pass at her. And uh, she, but she's a widow, and it's clear that she doesn't like being in the house on her own. And every, the town people all know this. But he comes in the evening, and I think it's very deliberate that he does that. Whereas uh, I think Christine was saying like, ah, oh, he's just an idiot. He didn't know he was chancing his arm. I was like, I think he's a predatory creep. But um, so yeah, so we kind of we had different viewpoints on it. But uh, and then with Maria Edgeworth again, it's, it's there aren't many stories by by her that I could find. They're, they're, they do exist, but they're really hard to find because again, she's more noted for her political work, the nonfiction stuff, obviously the novels. Um, and uh, I, that story is, is is a real allegory. It, it's a very simplistic story when you read it first, but there's so many things going on in it. So. So yeah, I, I didn't, it was more, I, I, I went with my gut a lot, stories I really liked. I didn't kind of go, I think this needs a story about X. I didn't tend to do that. And again, you're sort of thinking about, I decided it was going to be a chronological to decide that sort of that long gaze back, that arc going back to all the women who'd written. Um, and even Charlotte Riddell, who was a very popular writer in her time, a bestseller, I would say, is, you know, not as famous, but a contemporary of Dickens, um, published over 50 books, sold heaps of books, and yet her first seven or eight books are published pseudonymously because, you know, the danger of hearing a woman's voice uh, wasn't very ladylike to be writing books. But um, that story is is probably probably the most feminist piece in the book, I would argue. It's very, given that it was written when it was, it's about uh, the lot of being a wife and how 
your husband's always right, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah. How challenging then was it to make a selection of, of writers who, in fact, weren't even published yet in terms of... Yeah, um, yeah, that was a tricky one. And again, because I, I, I think of um, I think of an anthology as just it's it's in a it's a constantly moving thing. In one in one sense, it's I'm going to completely contradict myself. It's sort of cast in amber. It's it's a time capsule of the time that you made the book, and yet it's only just the next link. So you're waiting to kind of hook up to the next book that comes along. And maybe that's Glass Shore away, or maybe it's Female Lines, or whatever, or maybe it's Lucy's collection for Faber that's coming out next year. I don't know what that is, but. Um, I it was I wanted there to be very really new like terribly new people in it. Um, I had read some of Emer Ryan's work. Uh, Emer was only twenty six. She's the youngest writer. It's the last story in the book. Uh, I'd read some of Emer's short stories. Uh, I knew she was working on a novel, which I'd seen some of, and I just thought her work was she's incredibly strong. And and that's I love that story as well because it's about um, an older woman who is. Uh, I don't like the word promiscuous, especially when it's used about women, um, but basically likes to get around and but enjoys herself and it's so it's about her older body and her desire and you never hear about those women you don't see them in films and you certainly don't read about them in books and I just thought that was a really brave uh, and unusual character that I hadn't seen much of in Irish fiction um June Caldwell I knew because I don't know how I think I got to know June via Facebook maybe but also I had asked her I used to co-edit a group blog called the anti-room it was a feminist group blog and we don't do it anymore we still tweet but we don't do it and June wrote some pieces for us, including an incredible piece about depression that won a blog award. Um, and I, I just knew, I, I, I knew she had a sensibility. So I hadn't seen any fiction. Uh, and I, I always, when I talk, June and I have done events and I, you know, she basically says, I'm, I'm the risk. Uh, and she was, but I, I knew it'd be something incredible. I didn't know she'd leave it for two bloody days before to write the story. But then, but then the story has an unbelievable energy to it. A, a kind of kineticism that, I, it wouldn't have it. She'd been slaving over for six months. And I think if you read that story, you can see that. And to tell it from the, the fetal point of view, it's a very political, it's a, one of the most experimental stories in the book as well. But when I got it, I was just wowed. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm glad I trusted my instinct on that one because I knew she sort of had it. But but even Emer McBride, Emer had not, was only sort of a, a, emerging a little when she was in the book. Um, I remember when I asked Lisa McInerney again, uh, her novel hadn't come out yet. And um, she was like, I don't think I can write short stories. She was quite nervous about it. Now she's going great guns with it but I think I think it might have been one of the first uh, she'd, she'd been in town and country Kevin's uh, great that which is actually one of the best stories in it mm-hmm. and um, I think she just found them really hard but I think she's finding more of a group with them because they are hard that's the thing they are hard to write Is there a buzz to to be kind of a creator in the sense that those stories wouldn't have existed if you hadn't commissioned them? Um yeah, I suppose so. In a way, because I know June, June got her book deal with New Island based on the one story in in Long Days Back. So that's another example of a book coming out of this anthology. Nora Holt is also back in print because of Nora's brilliant story in this book, uh, the epitome of the forgotten woman writer. Twenty four novels, four short story collections, more banned than John McGahern, Edna O'Brien utterly forgotten. I, I wonder if anybody, bar a handful of people I know Margaret has, uh, has, has read her. Um, so there is, the, is that, but it, it, I, I'm more of a facilitator and, and I just hope that me doing this and the glass Row will make th- that there's other younger anthologists looking at this going, oh, I, that, so I want to keep this going. So I'd love there to be more anthologies. I'd love someone else to do it as well. Can I put you on the spot and ask you, like you've chosen, what, eight dead writers. Can I mm. put you on the spot and say in a hundred years' times, you know, which 
um, living Irish women writers, um, would you put money on being in a similar anthology? That's a terrible question. Hey. Oh, um, can't all be easy. Uh, well, I, I, the first one that comes to mind, obviously Anne Enright, for sure. Uh, I mean, the work is uh, is flawless to my mind. Whether it's the short story, and, and it's funny, she, she talked about her story in this collection on Arena on Monday night, and she just said, "God, I think it looks a bit tired now." Um, and if, you know, if Anne thinks that a better work, what hope is there for the rest of us? Um, it, I just think she's a natural, the, the novels are brilliant. She's a booker winner. Her short stories are incredible. But also in the last few years, we've seen her not just through her laureateship, um, but for the LRB, the London Review books, writing incredible nonfiction. Um, the piece she wrote about the tomb babies, the uh, Antigone in Galway, is that what it's called? Uh, is, is one of the best pieces of writing I've ever seen. It's a long essay about that. She's obviously written a lot about, she's written a lot about imbalance and leaving people out. She's written brilliantly about Maeve Brennan. Um, and I, there's nothing she can't do. I've never seen her write a poem. I don't think Anne would write poems. But I, I think that is the kind of work. It's political and it's vibrant and it's timeless. And it has the thing that Anne says about her own work, which is relevant to all writing, which is when you know that it's good, which is it's all about the sentences. And that's what it is with Anne's work. Every single sentence does and says something. It's not something flowery or that's a, it's a kind of elastic band between two other sentences. Everything she writes matters. So I, I think Anne Enright would be the one to, that will still be read. Okay. What about the fact that, you know, this is an, an anthology of short stories, but obviously that's only one part of, um, of, of literature. Um, is there room for a different type of anthology, maybe something more like the, female, the original Female Lines, which takes in maybe extracts from novels, creative nonfiction, which is becoming, you know, more and more of a thing, who am I to tell you? Um, is that something that you might contemplate taking on at some point? Are you asking? <laughs> um, Unfortunately, I'm not in a position to commission um, you. Yeah, absolutely. Because again, I'm even in, with my own work, I, I think there we're moving. There's more of an interest now in in sort of cross pollination and and hybridization, um, where a piece of work isn't just one thing anymore. It's not necessarily a piece of memoir. It can be memoir. It can be life writing. It can be an essay. It can be what Maggie. Nelson calls her own writing um, auto theory or auto fiction. Um, so it can be a lot of different things. Um, in my own book, which is a book of essays, I, there's a couple of pieces that I've been told are more like long poems than they are essays. Um, and I, I think labeling is a, is a bad thing with writing anyway, because there's a lot of work I like. I mean, people like Marguerite Dura, that a lot of people, you know, it's technically fiction, but is it really fiction? Um, and I, I feel that. <sighs> Yeah, I I, th I like the idea of a book that just says, here's lots of good writing and not calling it what it is. Um, so could we look beyond um, the, 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 the writers that are in here? Because obviously there's lots of great women writers that aren't here because maybe yeah. the short story wasn't their thing. Yeah. So like, who would you say are, are the great Irish women writers per se, not just short story writers? Oh God, that's really hard. Um, I was at the launch of uh, Autonomy last Friday, Cathy Darcy's new anthology, um, and there's all sorts of there's all sorts of work in that. There's kind of personal testimony, short stories. I have a poem in it. Um, Eleanor Hooker, uh, who is a wonderful poet, read uh, a couple of pieces, and I, I just think her work is 
astounding. It's so brilliant. I've just read Leanne O'Sullivan's collection about her husband's illness and uh, I never had anything like it. It's unreal. Uh, Dear Rooney Griefe, one of my favourite Irish poets, bilingual poet, um, won the Rooney Prize a couple of years ago. Are I you know, collaborating with her on we, We're supposed to be, we're both so busy that we keep just sending each other apologetic emails going, sorry, I haven't done anything for the thing we're meant to be doing. Um, but I've, I, I, we, that even came about because I've just been at such an admirer of her work for so long. Um, in terms of, let me just think, God, there's so like, many. What are the novels by Irish women writers that have really impressed you, say, in the last 10 years uh, that you've read? Oh, I, I, Girl is a half-formed thing. And I, I remember I reviewed that for the Irish Times. I, I just thought it was the most sublime sort of deconstructed piece of work. It's very visceral, very raw. It's also taking all those things we know about Irish life to be there are bad priests, there's abuse, there's terrible fathers. But because of a language... Emer does something, she completely knocks it all down and reassembles it in a completely different way. And I think that book changed for a lot of people. And I know that there, I talk to younger writers who say that that was a big book for them in the same way that Night by Edna O'Brien was a, another big experimental book. Edna, obviously, would be someone who's huge for me. Uh, and again, just to watch the sort of changes in her work, the more traditional if, form, if you like, of the, the early trilogies, Country Girls, and yet what she was actually talking about in those books when nobody else, and how dangerous it was for her to talk about that stuff. And then you get into Night uh, and In the Forest, um, and the fact that she's still creating the work she's creating. I'm trying to think now, you've really put me on the spot. Um, I can throw in a few suggestions, yeah. I don't know, say Jennifer Johnson, Captains on the Kings, yeah, for example. Yeah, Gen I mean, Jennifer, again, is, is somebody, uh, Jennifer is somebody that I had to write to by hand for the long days back. Mm -hmm. And uh, she replied with a postcard that said, oh, please don't ask me to write short stories, I hate them. Um, so, so she said no, so I did ask Jennifer, it was another, pr this mm -hmm, is the other mm -hmm. thing, there are lots of people in this book who did say no, for very, who weren't in this mm -hmm, book for mm -hmm. the reasons of not saying no. One person, because they had a lot going on at the time, was Claire Kilroy, who I think mm -hmm. is an incredible yeah. writer, and um, she's writing again and I can't wait to see what she does next as well uh, I love her novels her short fiction her incredible essay uh, a couple of years ago uh, in Winter Papers about writing and motherhood one of the rawest things I've ever read uh, and I thought that was incredible um I think, again, the sort of the, the new work I'm seeing in those journals as well as you get to be introduced to, to you know younger writers and sort of people that are don't want to write about the, the, the Irish, the so-called Irish stuff of years ago. People are kind of, you can write, and it's much more, um, I suppose, met, not even metropolitan, it's much more global, but lot, the work isn't set here. It's, it doesn't even mention Ireland. It doesn't mention cities or, you know, the boom or the bust or any of those things. It's like people sort of moved on with, to be an Irish writer, there will be a time where there'll be Irish writers who don't write anything that's said here or is about here. It's about, you know, maybe that's like Philip O'Callag writing about, you know, living in Budapest or whatever. But um, yeah, it, it's it's changing. What it is to be an Irish writer, I think, is changing an awful lot. And that technology is part of that, I think, as well. Um, I think, uh, I, I actually, Neve Boyce, I loved her novel, The Herbalist, and she's actually said last night she's got a book of poems coming out very soon, which would be interesting. Again, this idea that you had to be a, write, a novelist for life, or you had to be Alice Munro if you wrote short stories. There, a lot of writers sneak around on the forums. They, 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 you know, they mooch about and go from one form to the other. And I think that's a good thing. It can only freshen up your novel when you go back to your novel after your book of poems, I think. But... Tell us a little bit about um, your collection, our collection of essays, Constellations, that's coming out with Picador um, next year. Um, like, I think I've read three pieces. There's um, the, sorry, Chalk. Blue Hills and Chalk Bones. Blue Hills and Chalk Bones. Yeah. Um, and a couple of others. Um, maybe tell us, could you give us a hint of, of what some of the other essays are about? 
Um, I, well, I just I handed in the another version of it recently, so I'm waiting on a line edit. Uh, and I think what the publishers say to you all the time about collections like this is, think of the shape. What's the shape? I'm like, I don't know what the shape is, um, because it, in lots of ways they seem quite um, disparate, but. I can see connections between them. So obviously there's the two granta pieces. There's the piece from Gorse, your chroma, which is sort of 50 fragments about the colour red, but it's, you know, it's about film and art and surgery. Uh, the longest essay in it is nearly 9,000 words and it's about um, the history of blood and uh, it takes in all sorts of different things. Um, I talk about class, uh, the, the adventure narrative and ad adventures and how it was often a very male one. Uh, I write a lot about the body, so there's stuff about illness and pregnancy and motherhood. There's a long essay on abortion that I'm probably going to have to change or fix now, if, depending on what happens next month. Um, and there's, again, there's a very, there's a piece in it that was long listed for the Lifted Brow Experimental Nonfiction Prize. It's an Australian magazine last year. It's um, based on a, a very specific medical pain index and it's 20 different, what looks like short poems based on 20 different experiences. Um, and that definitely looks more like a, a long poem than essays to me. Um, there's a piece I wrote about my godmother and women and dementia and care um, that was published on, in Granta. And yeah, I took out three pieces and I've, I've added two more in. There's a long piece on hearts and saints. There's a lot of, I seem to keep writing bits and pieces about religion. Um, there's another piece called Panopticon that was part of a group art exhibition in Galway recently on the body and institutions. So I wrote about hospitals, uh, the architecture, colour, um, Foucault's, obviously the birth of the clinic. So um, yeah, it's very, I, I realise my elevator pitch is terrible as I keep <laughs> rambling these things off. So I don't, it's a bit, I, I, the, the body, art, uh, contemporary Irish womanhood in a mm -hmm. way. And yet it's, it's, some of it's about me and then lots of it is not about me at all. Mm -hmm. So Still working on it. Still a work in progress, I think. And lurking in the background somewhere, there's a, a novel in progress as well? Yeah, I, I started that. Uh, I've had this very specific idea for a really long time. And it, it's one of those, it, it's like a sort of a, a, a dog hanging onto the leg of your trousers. And I can't seem to shake it off. And it, it's it's very, very specific um, and might be slightly related to technology, even though I didn't think that it was. And um, I can't seem to let it go. So I've written maybe uh, there's bits and pieces. And again, I realise I am I will never be the person that starts at the start and writes and gets to the end. Um, I write a bit here and then when I either get bored or I get stuck, I go, I'll just jump over to this bit 70 pages later. So I kind of write in a horizontal, messy way. Um, but that's OK, because once you keep writing, if you stop writing, that's the thing. Um, I remember interviewing uh, the late Alistair MacLeod at the Cork Short Story Festival, who only wrote two collections of stories and, and a very fine novel that uh, was not for the for impact and um he i asked him a question the the, the cork story festivals obviously everyone stays for the weekends so lots of writers in the audience and i had heard that he he didn't ever redraft ever um and i said to him is it true that you don't redraft and the whole audience of writers just went <gasps> uh, and he said no he said i write up lines and paragraphs and if i don't know what's next i just stop and I go on and I said, and you never go back over that draft. And he said, no. So he's basically, it has to be perfect each mm. sentence. And that's, so ended. that's very slow, uh, mm. hence the output, I think. And I think that made me kind of terrified. But then there's never, there's no one way to write. But for me, it's better to keep motoring. Um, all the writers from the book last night were saying that they all write longhand. But I generally am very time poor. So I, it has to be straight onto the laptop for me. But one day, maybe the novel, maybe I should try, you know, because it, I, I, I know I'm writing it in a very different way to the essays. It's not the same part of my brain at all. Mm -hmm. So maybe I need to make some time to do some longhand stuff. 
And finally, can I maybe ask, it sort of struck me, like, um, obviously you've written about your, your childhood illness in, in one of the pieces. Like, how formative um, do you think that was to you becoming a writer, certainly becoming a reader? Like, it struck me a lot, like, I, I'm forever coming across, you know, writers' biographical background, and so many of them, it seems to me, you know, have had some kind of childhood, obviously Robert Louis Stevenson or whatever, like, but there seems to be, it seems to be obviously a common common thread, obviously not everybody, yeah. you know, uh, spent their childhood on a sickbed or whatever, but it is obviously quite a common um, thread. Yeah, I, I mean, if I'd known I was going to write about it, I would have taken some notes, it would have made it a lot easier. Um, but I, yeah, it absolutely did, because it was, I was 13 when that happened, and it was kind of 13 to 17, was mostly in hospital, in and out, or on crutches, or having loads of surgeries. So it was, you know, a very formative time where I did miss out on a lot of that cool stuff. Um, so when everybody was going to discos a lot of the time, I was at, at you know bed bound. So I would, so I read, and I just read all the time. And I think I, and also when you're that at that age, you're you're omnivorous. You're you're not snobby. You're not genre phobic. You just read everything. And I literally gobbled up everything there was all around and went to the library and did all of that. So yeah, and I think that's that's why I, with my own children as well, I've tried to keep them reading because you're fighting a lot, an awful lot of screens and, and stimulation so to, to kind of keep them because I think if you lose it at a certain age it's it's kind of gone maybe you can pick it back up but I, I most of the the hardcore readers I know were people who were hardcore readers as, as, as children um and I think that yeah I, I mean I think I don't I, I'm trying to remember I interviewed a writer I don't know if it was Elizabeth Strout and she said that a lot of writers become writers that it comes from a place of trauma and I I while I've had a lot of traumatic moments in terms of things with my health I, I don't I'm weird. I wouldn't be the same person. Like I wouldn't, maybe I wouldn't be a writer at all. Maybe I wouldn't be a reader if those things hadn't happened. Maybe I just wouldn't be who I am. So I don't have any regrets mostly. Pain, yes, but you know, um, I don't really have any regrets about that. But I think so. Yeah, I remember talking to Gary Steingart, the great and very funny American writer, was saying that he does most of his writing in bed because he's got a terribly bad back. Um, and obviously this, the famous stories about Dickens had a mysterious illness for a couple of years. I think he's between seven and nine and was pretty much in bed the whole time and there was a lot of talk about that you know that creepy old house in Clontarf or whatever where the, you know maybe his imagination got to to, to wander yeah Bram Stoker, so, Bram Stoker yeah. sorry yes mm. um, he just kind of he was sick for a couple of years and, yeah. that, and maybe feverish and maybe yeah. his imagination ran, ran amok but yeah I've met a lot of writers who were ill when they were young mm. who've who write, yeah, interesting. Or, or maybe the the real connection is mm. between reading and writing because you can't you, know, be, you can't be a writer without being a reader. Mm. I, I, if I met a writer who said they didn't read, I'd be highly alarmed. <laughs> okay, listen, Sinead, thank you very much. Uh, it's been fascinating uh, listening to you, and we can highly recommend this um, anthology, The Long Years Back. In fact, personally speaking, one of the things um, that strikes me pleasantly looking at the index is that um, each month we choose a book and the Art Times Book Club and eight of the the writers um, take part are taking part in the long years back have also featured um, their own work in um, in our Art Times Book Club over the last few years which is great uh, listen thank you all so much for coming um, I hope you've enjoyed yourselves uh, you've been listening to myself Martin Doyle and Sinead Leeson editor of The Long Gaze Back thank you, thank you. If you would like to learn more about the anthology, go to irishtimes.com forward slash books, where you will find a host of essays and articles by writers and academics, as well as an interview with Sinead and two stories from the collection. Next month's book club choice is The Trick to Time by Kit DeWall. 
That's all for this edition of the podcast. Thanks for listening.